out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, yet ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. I'm going to get into a topic today that has captured the imagination, certainly, of most people interested in archaeology over the past decade. Um, We did a survey, as I think most of you know, who followed the program fairly regularly, that our survey indicated that uh, some of the old standbys of archaeological interests, specifically ancient civilizations and human origins, still rank up there as, as, as the most interesting and most appealing and widely sought uh, approaches that, that, that people have, have uh, j- expressed interest over. I thought that that might have changed a little bit because archaeology is now branching out into so many other disciplines, forensics, uh, crime scene investigations, um, mass grave exploration, and uh, a variety of different types of elements, including the law and, and statutes and heritage, cultural heritage preservation. But apparently the sexiest topics still remain the ones that drew people into movies like Indiana Jones in the first place, and that is uh, early civilizations and, uh, again, human origins. Now, uh, we will be giving you and presenting a number of programs dealing with these topics at length, and obviously there will be a series of presentations on those issues, but one of one of the items that has has really emerged over the uh, social networking media uh, as as we we progress is is this whole question of human origins, because this is uh, an issue that has grown in terms of the knowledge base in leaps and bounds over the past decade. And we are now rapidly getting to the point where the out-of-Africa hypothesis is, if not uh, being acknowledged by most scientists and, and most people who who follow the scientific evolution of this research, uh, is is certainly becoming more and more grounded in facts that are being discharged for a variety of different types of disciplines, environmental, uh, 
evolutionary biology, uh, human biology, and uh, most specifically in, in the recent few years, uh, DNA studies that are able to track the patterns of human dispersal uh, across the world with a fair amount of reliability. Uh, those of you who are even intrigued by the TV shows like CSI and that sort of thing are fully aware of how accurate a fingerprinting method DNA is. And this extends into the uh, realm of human evolution and tracking the fo what we call the fossil record, the human fossil record across the world. And we'll be getting into that in some great detail, but one of the ramifications of this is that the evidence that we find for early people, and this doesn't matter where they are, whether, they're not, whether or not they're the early human forms that are in Africa, some more evolved forms that, uh, but are still quote, considered primitive in places like Asia and in Europe and, and, and more developed and, and, and fully modern human folks that, that disperse into the New World, into North and South America. The fact of the matter is that all of these groups of people, if you want to call them hominids, if you call, want to call them fully formed uh, individuals um, uh, that, that are, are fully similar to the present form in, in, in almost every criteria, those folks always are initially found with evidence for stone tool manufacture. The stone itself, any, not any stone, we'll get into this in some, some detail, but stone is the initial adaptive strategy. The use of stone, the manufacture and, and cutting down of stone and the shaping of stone into a tool and an implement that can be used for a variety of different types of activities. That seems to be the initial fingerprint of the human condition anywhere in the world. So that if we're talking about, for example, North America, where yes, there are arguments going back and forth. There, there are now some recent arguments that are, are stating that uh, in, in, in the mid-continent, North America, it's very possible that uh, that, that people were here over a thousand, a hundred thousand years ago, which is which is really pretty far-fetched. But these these theories do come out, and they have to be tested on occasion. Let's assume the uh, the conservative estimates would be about fifteen thousand years ago, but nevertheless. Let's even assume that 15,000 years ago, people arrived in North America from uh, possibly, probably at this point, from Asia. There are now theories saying that they're coming in from the other side across the Atlantic, the so-called Salutrian concept, which we'll get into at some point uh, and is related to this, this question of stone tools as well. But the fact of the matter is that wherever they, whenever they do appear, and if we say 15,000 or whatever, that period is invariably associated with stone tools, stone tools that are dated by accompanying uh, radiocarbon, uh, radiocarbon uh, elements to uh, that, that particular time frame based on, on burnt charcoal and burnt wood in some cases. The association between uh, tools that are unquestionably of human origin, we'll talk about that and how we identify that in a minute, those are always linked to, human, to tools and tool making. So tool making uh, on stone is the very first avenue of human adaptation 
um, because people had to use something that was very, very durable in order to survive in the various types of environments and conditions in which they lived. And they learned how to manufacture and implement by figuring out how to chip away, to manufacture, to remove large flat fragments of stone from, uh, from, from a parent stone and to shape it by a variety of methods into something that is manageable and that can be used to either puncture or pierce or scrape or poke or whatever you want to call it uh, to, uh, to make clothing, to, uh, to create arrowheads, spear points, the types of implements that would be necessary for them to actually survive. And this is true everywhere in the world. And the type of stone that is the most widely used and widely available and e most easily worked and most durable and sharp and ma maintaining the types of characteristics that are usable for, for coping, as it were, for whatever type of activities were necessary for coping, is a tool called CHERT. And this is a cryptocrystalline siliceous stone that is found in limestone veins all over the world. And this is not to say that this is the only stone type that that is used but it's certainly the most durable the most surviving the one that is almost immediate that, that flips into any archaeologist's head who studies these things um it is the the tool, the, uh, the rock known as flint in the old world meaning uh anywhere but north and south america and australia it, it, it would it would be commonly called uh, flint in that part of the world, but in North America and South America, it's referred to very often as chert. Although chert and flint have uh, different mineralogical components and different geochemical signatures or geochemical elements, nevertheless, they represent the most enduring, durable type of stone tool of stone rather that on on which tools are manufactured. Um, and and it's it's an incredible phenomenon and and one that was brought up again as I said from the listenership, uh, very people who are basically just very interested students of archaeology say, how come everywhere I look, whether it's China, whether it's South Africa, whether it's North Africa, whether it's North America, whether it's South America, whether it's Europe, everywhere I go, I see the evidence for stone tools and the magic words flirt, flint or chert, and not flirt, flint or chert, and there's just this incredible association. And the reason for that is that a variety of different types of techniques can be applied to this very durable stone to make it into a shape with with sharp edges that that you want it to make you want it, you want it to form you want to form it into a uh, a strategy in, in, into a shape that can be used for any kind of an activity and it turns out that there are still in uh, in the world there are people who have actually specialized in trying to reconstruct the uh, degradation patterns of the parent rock how it's brought down from a raw block of chert or flint and then uh, gradually Weaned, weeded down into a usable item, and there's a, there's an entire uh, series of transformations to the stone that have created a technology and a typology or a series of types of stone that are used for various different types of purposes, and these are actually and have actually been cataloged and are very specific to particular 
parts of the world and to particular time frames. Let's talk about the time frames for a minute. If we talk about the origins of humans, and again, this is a topic for another place and another time, and we will get into that at some point, but we are constantly, as many of you know who follow the evolutionary hominid literature, the time frames are getting pushed back all the time to the point uh, where we're getting to about four or five million years ago where we're going beyond what's known as the Pleistocene into the Pliocene and we're starting to see that the origins of people in, in the bipedal form, in the, in, in the, in the walking form, uh, are just being pushed back. And uh, there's, of course, and I'm not going to get into this, the entire question of the missing link. I think uh, many of us uh, have finally disabused ourselves of the idea that there is such a thing as a missing link because there are really effectively a bunch of branches that evolved and disappear and are linked. And there are mutations that have resulted in, in, in sort of a nonlinear flow of, 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 human, of the human life, of human, human life form. But be that as it may, each one of them, as I said before, is associated with with uh, stone tools. And if we look at the traditional um, history of human evolution, the, uh, this takes us back to Africa, as I said before, the uh, Zero-African Rift, which runs from uh, the Middle East, from the Jordan Valley, uh, all the way up into Syria, and well down into the eastern third of Africa, cutting, cutting through Ethiopia, where the Leakies in the late 1940s and early 50s found the sites of, of Olduvai, which I think uh, most of us will agree sort of mark the initial phase of systematic exploration for the human form. And the reason that it was found was, of course, that this was a huge uh, tectonic split in the Earth's crust that exposed a variety of different types of layers, uh, some of which, many of which exposed uh, fossil remains, bones, and fossilized uh, bones as well that were linked to human activity, and again, specifically in the form of stones that, uh, that, that in the earliest phases were dated to about a million, two million years ago, and there was an association between these obvious uh, skulls and uh, extracranial remains that could only be linked to something um, that was related to uh, something human-like, if you will, to use, use a, a pedestrian name for it. And there was a series of stones that was discovered in association with these very, very provocative and unquestionably human-like bones that gave rise to the original uh, series of investigations as to why, uh, how, how we could determine whether or not a stone, which, at that, uh, which was associated, again, with these, with these fossil remains, whether or not that was humanly manufactured or whether or not it was, it was a naturally broken stone. And... Um, the tradition of stone tools, and it was questionable at the time because it was very clear to, very difficult to prove this, uh, was called the Alduin Assemblage. And it was a series of rocks that eh, looked somewhat manufactured. Uh, at that point, our ability to identify what was humanly manufactured and what was simply the result of, of extensive shattering and breakage by natural process. It was difficult to determine that, but with a variety of different types of experiments and with increasing associations with these stones and bones, it became fairly clear that the commonality 
of these associations between certain types of cranial elements or bones, uh, bones associated with, with heads or parts of, of the upper anatomy and even long bones, were associated with these, these types of rocks. And, and, and whether or not uh, you believe that the rocks themselves, uh, which had very jagged edges and, and, and were made on effectively rounded cobbles, whether or not these were humanly manufactured, that was a, a separate question. But there is a compelling piece of information that suggests that if you're constantly finding those types of rocks with human-like bone elements, then you at least have to consider the possibility that the rocks themselves were modified by human action or by hominid action or by the types of, uh, the, the types of, of people who left the skulls and the, the bones that were found alongside them. And it, it's a very provocative kind of an association. If it repeats itself in more places than one, two, or three, and, and this was in an Aldovai Gorge, then there certainly are reasons to assume, A, that at the, at the outset, the people actually found stones that were naturally chipped and, and, and had sharp edges, and they could use them for cutting things like hides, like, like wood, like breaking other bones and, and splitting them up for a variety of different subsistence activities to start fires, which, which we now know go, the fire goes back to well over half a million years ago. Ago. And to do those types of activities, it's very possible to make the association between the use of naturally uh, chipped or, or fragmented stone with good edges to a human mechanism that actually uh, took this kind of breakage into account and uh, with, with the use of the human mind said, you know what, we can do this and we can chop these stones up into edges and break them down into edges that are increasingly more efficient for the uses that we want to apply them to. So it's not a big leak leap in cognitive thinking to say what we see naturally may be something that we can replicate by the use of our brains and by applying a certain type of technique and technology to chip these things systematically. And then lo and behold, we have more evolved tools, uh, a, a tool set called hand axes themselves, which require very more intricate uh, modification of the, uh, the, the stone itself. And that will allow you to very clearly see that this is something that can only be manufactured by human agency and with deliberate manufacture and with a deliberate string of activities uh, associated with something with someone or some entity that thinks and, and has the capability of visualizing. And on that note, we'll take a little break and we'll start talking about the evolution of human stone tool manufacture after this break. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Professionals and families who are dealing with autism face challenges that can lead to many questions. Questions about how to understand, communicate, and support each other. 
Every week, Autism Today with host Dr. Patrick J. Rydell will focus on dealing with the diagnosis and the day-to-day challenges of autism spectrum disorders. Dr. Rydell will combine his 30 years of experience along with featured guests from the ASD field to provide their insights and answers to your questions. Listen every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Want to hear about what's going on in the world of fashion, beauty, gossip, and politics? Then you'll want to tune in every Wednesday to the Voice America Variety Channel. Face Forward with entrepreneur and beauty consultant Sarah McNamara is honest talk, great guests, and a cool vibe with a lot of fun. Sarah and her guy Friday, Anthony, will turn you on to what's hot and what's not. This is a radio show custom made for you. Tune in to Face Forward, Wednesdays at 2 p.m. in the East, 11 a.m. in the West on Voice America Variety. Come back to your senses. Imagine a radio show that will help you recover your common sense. Host Leah Brenda Smith is a health and wellness specialist who will explain techniques designed to help you recover from the stress of your life. It's all about how you respond to your thoughts. A little bit of self-awareness can go a long way in helping you to relax and enjoy your life. Tune in to Come Back to Your Senses Radio, live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. We're back uh, at Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, and I was discussing the uh, preponderance of stone tools in the early fossil record and the association of uh, stone tools in almost every part of the world in which the so-called earliest humans are documented. And I don't mean the earliest... Uh, humans just just in the evolutionary sense, but which, which would be appropriate for places like Africa and parts of Asia, but also in, in terms of the earliest human arrivals, which would be in a more appropriate uh, context for examining, say, the settling of North America and South America and Australia, where uh, certainly the compelling evidence indicates that uh, human arrivals post-date 40,000 in, in, in Australia and probably Again, we're we're into controversial terrain here, but but certainly uh, not unequivocally goes back to about fifteen thousand in North America and, and possibly a little bit earlier in South America. But in any case, in all these locations, in all these locations, it is unique to find the earliest evidence for occupation to be associated with stone tool assemblages. And, and, and in many cases, uh, they're, they're associated with the types of activities that, uh, that these stone tools were associated, uh, were, were linked to having, having produced, for example, fireplaces and skin processing stations and burning pits and, and those types of situations. And invariably, the only thing that will survive 
uh, in addition in in addition to organics or, or say uh, decomposed uh, food materials and animal materials in some situations, but the stone tools survive everywhere. So uh, they're represented and and they're maintained in that connection. Um, we'll talk about these chronologies a little further down the road, but, but we were talking about the very first appearances of, of the stone tool industry, and I think the very critical uh, discoveries were made by the Leakies in the 1940s and early and 50s, um, <clears throat> when they discovered Zinjanthropus and the, the association of these old uh, human remains with stone tools. And uh, as I said before, the initial association, uh, the initial discoveries, I, I will say, were, were not unequivocal. In other words, you can't really, couldn't really tell whether those old, old one chopping tools were actually of human manufacture and, and even allowing for that, uh, the fact that they may have been sort of naturally chipped and, and to create a very jagged kind of an edge. Eventually, I think the association between those jagged edge tools and, and the, the cranial elements and the skeletal elements uh, were, was significantly compelling so that when we started to see more evolved stone tools in which chipping patterns were very clearly uh, not natural, as a matter of fact, they found clear associations between the chipping locations and the final tool product to the point where right now people are actually able to put together a puzzle that can assemble the chips themselves or the flakes or the debris from the manufacturer onto the finished tool and uh, to demonstrate once and for all that this was clearly something that people had to have manufactured. It's all in a cluster and, 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 and you can actually reconstruct the systematic changes of, of this type of manufacture and you can do it in North America as easily as you can in parts of the old world. Now, the, the general size and the variety uh, well, the, the size and the variety are two elements that change through time. And if you think about it logically, the larger stone tools were the ones that uh, are the earliest, not just in the t- terms of the stage of manufacture, but just in terms of the final technology. So that uh, by about 300, 400,000 years ago, we, we had crude hand axes, uh, literally the types of tools that will fit in your hand in sort of an ovate type of shape. And you can literally pick these things up. They fit in your hand and you can just slice and hack and bang away at them and um, with them rather and, and, and you can see that, that these are very very productive types of tools uh, that they, they, uh, they can be used for a variety of different type of shaping uh, activities cutting skins if you want to visualize that cutting uh, bones uh, digging holes um, and and that sort of thing, and you could continue to use these these items and and survive in a forested environment or in an open environment, and you could you could create holes to, for fireplaces and and break sticks and and, and as I had said, if <clears throat> if you saw some of those early movies, uh, uh, something with fire. Um, it was made about 20 years ago. I can't remember the name offhand, but it showed it was an excellent reconstruction of how a flint stone uh, was utilized and principles of friction were utilized to create the original fires. And, and, and that seems to be pretty much borne out by the archaeological evidence in, in places like China, where some of the earliest hearths or fireplaces were found. And this was all done by rubbing stones together and um, utilizing the unique properties and friction attendant uh, to rubbing flint. So uh, these associations are pretty well explained. Now what happens, I think, over time is that there's a refinement in the manufacturing pattern. And uh, stone tools 
because uh, human dexterity becomes uh, a critical issue and uh, the, the mind working in overdrive is starting to see uh, different types of uses for uh, different sizes of stone tools of uh, a variety of, of, of different types of purposes to pierce, to poke, to slice, to dice. I don't want to sound like a TV commercial, but you get the picture. You you find a variety, so many different types of activities where if you have control over the manufacture of of, of this stone, of this piece of stone, then uh, then you, the types of varieties and the efficiencies in which you could project to your survival patterns just increases exponentially. And in conjunction with that, um, we are able to reconstruct the various stages in the stone tool manufacturer. You're not just hacking away at the edges, but there's something called soft and hard percussion where actually you can use bones and, and what's known as a striking platform to break away different portions of what's known as the core or the central part of the stone that you chip away systematically and you create very, very unique types of shapes and flaked tools that are flaked off of this very malleable uh, stone form, which, again, as I said, is called flint in the old world and chert in the new world. It's, it's based, uh, it is found in, in very specific geochemical conditions in limestone bedrock. And you can shape these things with a tremendous degree of accuracy, precision, and direction uh, to the point where you can make points and you can make what, what are known as perforators and uh, a variety of cutting tools, microblades, bladelets, tiny little uh, centimeters, centimeter large or long and elongated items. Um, you can make little crescents that, that uh, in later times, in, in, in subsequent uh, later Stone Age periods, were used for actual threshing and, and, and agricultural purposes when they were hafted onto bones and used actually with, uh, with a certain type of paste and tar to be part of a hafting tool. So uh, and I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but, but what you're seeing is, is increased refinement. Uh, in stone tool manufacturers, so that by the time you get into uh, into into the later periods, the uh, the refinement is, is really quite astonishing. Now, uh, I, I've referred to this as the Stone Age. Uh, professionals call it the Paleolithic. Paleo meaning old, lithic meaning stone, and the Paleolithic really represents the period of the hunters and gatherers. And uh, in archaeological parlance, people who study these things, uh, they refer to the period uh, prior to or, or leading up to plant and animal domestication when, uh, when, when uh, subsistence strategies were more focused on, on more central living. The hunter and gathering period was, was the period when, of the Ice Ages and the period when um, people simply, as they traditionally show you in the TV and in the mass media, when you know, mammoths through or rule the earth and 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 when people were actually um living in 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 uh on the edges of the glaciers and 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 in in uh many parts of the world that were that were in cold climates and these were hunter hunter and hunter and gathering populations by and large and they used the larger stone tools and they cut hides and and they uh uh, were responsible for actually organizing uh, large game kill sites and they had fairly sophisticated strategies on how to survive but they used the larger sort of cruder stone tools. The uh, Probably the most significant advances in stone tool 
uh, Paleolithic uh, archaeology occurred in France uh, in the middle part of the 20th century because of a variety of different types of cave sites uh, in France and, and, and in parts of Spain and, and Western Europe, in addition to parts of Africa, which is where the earliest sites are. But in the later Stone Age, and, and we're talking here about 100,000 100, uh, years ago and subsequent, which would be called the later Pleistocene and, and on the margins of the ice sheets, um, we find a lot of very extensive evidence for stone tool manufacture and use in caves because this is where uh, Paleolithic man, and in this case later Paleolithic man, I say after 100,000 years ago, which is the late Paleolithic, uh, upper Paleolithic we call it, uh, retreated into caves for shelter. And you will see a broad array of types of archaeological evidence and stone tool kits. At this point, uh, very well-differentiated stone tool assemblages are, are in evidence, and, and you'll see that in the caves and uh, also in open air sites, which is, which is a whole other area of archaeology. I'm not going to talk about the caves are sort of the glamorous part of it, and, and they really sort of give you a microcosm of the types of intensive activity that is not only practiced, but preserved in the archaeological record so that you can see this broad, dazzling array of stone tools with, with refinements of manufacturing and tiny little chipping patterns on this flint that really, in many cases, cannot be replicated today. The artisans who fashioned these types of implements uh, were masters, and this is what they did, and they did this 20, 30, 40,000 years ago. Um, again, we had basically evolved into our contemporary Homo sapiens sapiens form. Uh, the Neanderthals themselves had a different uh, stone tool chipping industry. Uh, it was called the Mousterian stone tool industry. I'm just sort of giving you sort of a broad survey of, of how these, these industries evolved and emerged. Um, the Neanderthals and the uh, Homo sapiens sapiens actually did interface in various parts of the world, and they had different tool kits, and they integrated. But the tool, tool, stone tool kits themselves were very, very differentiated. And, and for purposes of this discussion, uh, we are certainly at the point right now where, based on the types and the variability within the stone tool assemblage, we can identify what types of populations were probably using these stone tool kits. And uh, when they go back to, of course, we have in caves and places like that, we are able to date these things. Uh, certainly anything that's younger than 45,000 years ago, we can date with radiocarbon techniques, and we can find clear associations between uh, certain types of assemblages that... Uh, Again, in, in France, uh, France is sort of the home of the upper Paleolithic classification system um, that, that, that certainly has modifications in other parts of the world, specifically in the Middle East and, and parts of Africa. But um, we have very clear associations between certain types of stone tool industries and certain types of subsistence patterns. For example, uh, certain types of lithic of people associated with a certain type of lithic industries uh, are associated with certain types of uh, subsistence activities. They're hunting, uh, in some places they're hunting uh, coastal marine animals, in some places they're hunting reindeer, in some places uh, other types of of animals and, and processing different types of vegetal materials and plants uh, for subsistence purposes. And in the caves of France and Spain, 
and uh, many other parts of the world, but those, those are where some of the primary discoveries were made in the mid-20th century and early 20th century. This is where we have sort of the complete assemblage of cultural associations and stone tool associations and, and subsistence uh, records like fireplaces, hearths, animal bones of distinct types of, of fauna or, or animals that, that lived at those points in time. And we can make these very nice associations. One of the uh, benefits of looking at, at caves and, and doing the archaeology of caves is all the individual layers are very, very discreet. And they have these clean associations. Well, not all of them. People who work in this, uh, in this field will uh, probably jump up and down when they hear that. But in theory, in, at, at, at the very least, there's a, an association between a discrete layer of dirt and discrete artifact types and discrete faunal types and discrete radiocarbon uh, and, and, and burnt, burnt elements of, of the archaeological record that will allow you to make the association between a certain culture and a certain time frame. And uh, these are very nice and neat packages in many cases. Uh, obviously, there are a variety of different process that, processes that disturb them, but you get the general idea that you can develop in, 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 across a broad reach of locations, associations between cultures and stone toolkits and subsistence patterns and time frames and environmental changes through a variety of different uh, uh, paleoecological records, what we call old, old environmental residual uh, records, and you can put these, these sequences together. So that... Um, Again, and it's ubiquitous. Everywhere you go in the world, you will see these stone tools associated with, uh, with different types of, uh, say, uh, campsites or, or, or different habitation areas. And uh, the stone tool sets them, the kits or stone tool kits and assemblages have a very, very distinctive type of a composition that is linked generally to a particular, particular population. Um, the reach of this and, and the ubiquity of this is, is phenomenal because if we place if we place the time frame back, say, four million years ago, again, you know, I want to get into the controversy surrounding uh, human origins, but this takes us all the way down to 10,000, 5,000, 3,000 years ago, uh, 3,000 years ago, uh, where stone, stone tools are the dominant component of the uh, of the tool set that people are using. So if you put that in some kind of a perspective, I think uh, in most cases, in many cases, pottery uh, pottery goes back say seven, eight, nine thousand years, and and, and you uh, you look at that and and you um, you start to ask yourself, my goodness, um, most of the human condition is represented by stone tools, and that's that's a pretty compelling piece of information. And uh, I, I think that um, without knowing something about um, the stone tools and, and, and the relationship to the human condition, you're basically knocking out 99% of time. So that's, that's a pretty striking element now. Given that 5,000 years and subsequent, I mean, there was a huge advance in, in, in human adaptation, and, and, and clearly this is the period contemporaneous with, with the emergence of civilization. But even if we believe, and, and there's good information that, that certainly by about 10,000 years ago, um, people were starting to centralize their locations, they were starting to organize in villages, we're getting into what's known as the Neolithic versus the Paleolithic, in other words, Neolithic is the New Stone Age, well the New Stone Age only really starts at the 
end of the Pleistocene, which is the end formally of the Ice Age, if you want to put it in very, very generic terms. And then it's just the last 10,000 years is where we're starting to get this type of more advanced differentiation, uh, getting out of hunter-gatherers into, into more settled uh, domestic, domestic types of trends in the human condition. And what we're seeing here is, is the centrality of, of human activities and, and, and organizational mechanisms that are at least leading to where we are today. And uh, again, that sweep of time from five million to ten thousand—I mean, that's that's really that's our that's our whole story here. I mean, ninety-nine percent of it is that, and and so uh, it, it it's kind of awe-inspiring if you think about it. And and there are a lot of people who do study uh, Stone Age technologies and do study Stone Age um, adaptive strategies, and it's 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 a fascinating field. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit more. Uh, after the break, uh, we'll be back in about, in, in about a half a minute and continue our discussion. Thanks. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Each week, Jimmy Gould brings you the stories and the people that you want to hear about. Tune in to A Current Life to hear about the journey to success, how our guests became the people they are today, and the highs and lows they experienced along the way. Each hour will leave you inspired and entertained as Jimmy gets up close and personal with every week's guest and shares ideas you can identify with and apply to your own life. A Current Life with Jimmy Gould airs Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Michelle Kors Six Degrees is your connected consciousness. Six Degrees is what comes around, goes around radio. Committed to delivering a fresh perspective on thought-provoking, investigative information that can change your life. Six Degrees connects you to the social and emotional scene and is your trusted advisor from finance to romance, mainstream to metaphysical. It's a positive, upbeat look at life, love, and the pursuit of passion. Get connected Saturdays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. 
We're back on our show. Uh, we're talking about the Stone Age and the incredible sweep of time that's taken in by the Stone Age. And uh, as I had indicated, for the majority of its of its uh, dominance, the Stone Age is considered is divided into several phases. Um, there is the Paleolithic, which is the old Stone Age that essentially takes us from earliest human origins if we push that border back to three, four, five million years ago. Uh, and it takes us basically down to 10,000 or to the close of the Ice Age if you want sort of a, a, for a very generic marker, time, a time marker, a chronological marker for when these periods sort of start and end. There is a coincidence between uh, periods of environmental change and periods of cultural change. That's a, a whole other discussion, but it's kind of coincident and, and, and there's a way to sort of, you know, certainly as a mnemonic device to try to remember how these things work. Um, the close of the Pleistocene is, is pretty much the close of the Old Stone Age. And and in the Old World and, and areas that are traditionally thought of and by no means uniquely associated with, with the advances of civilization, but if you're talking about the Near East and if you're talking about uh, about the old the old world where quote Western civilization started, then uh, between ten thousand and, and about five thousand years ago, you're getting into the Neolithic or the New Stone Age, in which uh, there is again it, it, it's very generic, but but there are more refinements to the stone manufacturing techniques. The uh, actually w w what's happening in the course of the, of the new Stone Age where axes and, and, and refined chipping technologies and, and, and polishing uh, technologies are, are, are starting to get into, into vogue uh, in many parts of, of, of these cradles of civilization, if you will. Uh, the archaeological record is showing us that the dominance of stone tools is starting to fade and, into, and starting to feed into uh, more complicated sets of tools that actually survive in the archaeological record. And, and the next, the next uh, phase is, is clearly pottery, where, where clay is being fashioned and burned and tempered and held together and, and uh, vessels are being manufactured and fired and put together and, and, and pottery sort of becomes a supplement to uh, to the stone tools as again survivable survivable evidence that that is is in in obvious uh, preservation archaeologically, so we can see this. But but now you're looking at changes that are occurring between ten and five thousand years ago, and again you're looking into much later periods. Uh, if you want to sort of go into um, into again these these convenient cultural and environmental uh, coincidences, then you are also looking at around 3000 BC as being a major pivotal point in the old world where oh, we're starting to get into the use of metals. Uh, metals start in uh, the Bronze Age around 3000 BC in, in, in uh, the Eastern Mediterranean and a little later in the Western Mediterranean. There was also uh, one of the areas that I, I missed, I'm sorry, uh, there's also the Mesolithic, which is a medium of the Middle Stone Age, which is not as widely used as, as the Paleo-Neo-Meso. And uh, uh, actually, Paleo-Meso-Neolithic. And uh, we're starting to see the displacement of stone tools by uh, 
um, by a variety of more advanced manufacturing technologies that use fire in a very systematic way, use clay, they use, uh, they're, they're starting to be aware of the properties of metals. Uh, this is what's going on in the old world in general. That's not what's happening in the new world. Now, the new world is, is, is a, a different kettle of fish. Um, at this point, uh, there are some new controversial arguments that are starting to make their way into the literature, and they have certainly a, a bunch of compelling background information in their support. The traditional models are that um, stone tools in the new world were a completely different animal, and, and most people who, uh, even in a pedestrian fashion, follow New World archaeology are always drawn to the various point types, arrowheads, spear points that are characteristic of New World stone assemblages. Of course, different types of supporting uh, stone tool implements are, are parts of these assemblages. There are scrapers and, and borers and a variety of different types of, of uh, well, scrapers are, are ubiquitous. There's, there's, there's about as, as many different types of scrapers as you can imagine because they're manufactured on different parts of the flaked uh, piece of chert. In New World, we call it chert. And, and they're retouched, which means that their edges are... are uh, blunted in order to enable them to be hafted or to be used in a variety of different positions in the hand and in between the fingers. But these are all supplementary to the very intricate point tool types that sort of uh, gain all, gain all the, uh, the glamour here, if, if you want to call it that, in trying to differentiate what stone tool assemblages are like in the new world. It's always sort of classified by, by the point types. And that was, that was very pervasive until about 20 years ago when uh, we were starting to look at what was called the pre-Clovis phenomena, which are, are artifact types that aren't necessarily... Um, directly or call it even genetically, generically, if you wish, related to uh, the, the very, very variegated um, assemblages from the old world, which had a, a million different types or, or very many different types of modifications and microliths or small lithic implements that, uh, that were really very, very fine-tuned and, and, and very intricately manufactured and weren't necessarily points, per se. They weren't arrowheads. They weren't spear points. They were used for a variety of different types of poking and scraping activities, possibly even um, fit, fit into uh, hafts in series in order to 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 scrape and, and fashion um, hides and and, and, and to, to perform a variety of different types of cutting and even possibly harvesting uh, strategies and uh, these were inter these intricate types of stone tool industries were common as far east in the old world as Siberia and there seemed to be some kind of a disconnect as to why these things didn't really sort of cross the Bering Straits and show up with the ubiquitous Clovis folks that, that, that showed up in North America and South America and all over the place around 12,000 years ago. Why was there no linkage? And, and now all of a sudden there's the pre-Clovis argument that says, wait a minute, we're starting to find significant artifact types and significant stone tool assemblages that do bear some similarities and, and to, to the Northeast uh, Asian uh, 
uh, progenitors, if you will, and and may have some commonality here. And these are, these are some of the healthy archaeological arguments that are occ occupying the front desks of people who practice these things these days. And uh, we're talking about that right now. And um, it's, it's, it's starting to gain a certain amount of popularity in the literature, and, and there seems to be certainly uh, compelling evidence to entertain the hypotheses that, uh, that there was a smoother than uh, formerly believed transition between, say, the migrations from North, Northeast uh, Asia into the mid-continent and, and western, eastern continent of the United States and into South America, and that we can establish some kind of punctuated continuity, if I could use a buzzword that, that, uh, that sort of hedges my bets. Uh, we can possibly see that in places like Monte Verde in, 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 in South America and in some, uh, some new sites in, in, in North America as well. And at the same token, we are starting to get uh, arguments saying that elements of the French Paleolithic have penetrated North America through, uh, through the East Coast and across the Atlantic. And that is uh, an even newer hypothesis and is based on the fact that a certain point type, a certain artifact manufacturing technology called the Salutrian, which was grounded in the traditional French chronology, made its way into North America as well generally into Canada and into the East Coast. So we're starting to entertain new concepts based on similarities in stone tool manufacture, again, largely on the basis of this very distinctive type of, of uh, raw material, which is, of course, called uh, chert and flint. Now, I've talked about chert and flint forever. It is certainly true that artifacts were manufactured on different types of bedrock, different types of rock. However, the survivability of those types of rock in various climatic conditions is nowhere near as dependable as the chert and, and flint are. And so uh, we have a lot of different types of raw materials that have been used for stone tool manufacture, but they're nowhere near as nice. They're nowhere near as well-preserved. In eastern North America, there are tools made out of uh, volcanic rock, uh, argillite, rhyolite, uh, items that are somewhat similar to chert but have a different chemical composition and are much more easily erodible, and they're a lot, a lot more friable or they crumble. And, and so their survivability and our ability to reconstruct the manufacturing sequences for these types of uh, artifacts are, are really, really much more challenging tasks for us. And we can't really develop, at least at this point in time, a, uh, a systematic reconstruction of, of, of how these uh, stone tool industries evolved and, and how they were broken down and how they were differentiated. We do have points. There's no question that we have points on a variety of different types of raw materials. But again, it's the chert and it's the flint that is really the hallmark of, of our present capability of trying to classify these stone tools and, uh, and try to put them in, in some kind of a sequence, uh, certainly from uh, a techno and typological perspective that allows us to really get a fix on, on how these industries evolved in the past. And, and we're making uh, more and more advances 
in this direction all the time. Again, the North American question, South American, the New World question is is really becoming uh, uh, cent- central right now in the in in in, sto- in lithic technology world, if you will. Um, the question as to whether how independent was the evolution of lithic industries in in the New World, and can we really track this? To uh, to developments in the old world, uh, Western European Paleolithic, or uh, on the other side of the equation to the Northeast Asian Paleolithic and Siberia and places like that, and whether or not there was a nexus here in North America and drifting down into South America, and whether or not we can establish a continuum here, and it's a provocative question and one that I think is going to gather increasing momentum in archaeological circles as these investigations proceed. So, so these new frontiers in in uh, Paleolithic and Paleo-Indian. If, if we're talking about the New World archaeology, or keep on coming down the pike. And as our investigative strategies uh, become increasingly uh, more sophisticated, and I didn't even break into that, I mean, we're able to actually source these uh, raw materials by a variety of different and increasingly sophisticated geochemical testing uh, testing strategies that involve neutron activation and a variety of different types of high-resolution technological testing, uh, we were going to get probably in the next 15, 20 years much cleaner fixes on where these technologies evolved and if we can demonstrate a continuity between what happened in North America and what happened on the fringes of the old world. And on that note, um, I would like to end the program and summarize it and just again remind you of how significant and ubiquitous stone tool technology is in understanding the human career and the evolution of, of the human condition. And uh, on that note, I would like to thank everybody for for paying attention and tuning in on the program. And I will tell you that in the next few year, few weeks, we are going to branch out into more comprehensive discussions of the human evolution and the out-of-Africa hypothesis consistent with, with the pattern of this discussion. So until next time, stay well, and we look forward to seeing you. Thank you. again for tuning in to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.